Well, good morning, everybody. My name is C.B. Edder. I'm the senior pastor of Christ Community Church. For those of you who might be newer here, thanks so much for coming. If you could make your way to your seats, we're going to get started. I want to briefly introduce our guest speaker this morning named Jim Donahue. Jim and Trish Donahue have been friends of my wife Shannon and I for many years now. And Jim serves as a pastor of evangelism at Covenant Fellowship Church, our sister church. And I'm so thankful that you get to hear him preach today. You're going to be inspired by Jim's uh, heart for Jesus and his heart for the lost to hear about Jesus. And I'm inspired by him whenever I'm around him. Just He just very genuinely cares about people in God's church. He cares for brothers and sisters in Christ. If you get to say hi to Jim sometime later on today, uh, you'll feel like you've known Jim for years because he's just a guy that really cares genuinely about anybody God brings across his path. And then on top of all that, um, Jim's got a heart for the lost that really, uh, really stands out. And you're going to see that in the message today. Jim's going to help us in our evangelism series just to grow even stronger as a local church and carrying a burden for the lost. And so let's listen carefully as we kind of dig into God's word today. And let us be inspired by the Holy Spirit as as he speaks to us uh, through our brother in the Lord, Jim Donahue. So, Jim, would you come and church, can we just welcome our brother Jim as he comes and brings God's word? Thank you so much. Oh, my goodness. It's so wonderful to be here uh, with you guys. And um, so th- other, just amazingly... Uh, Amazed to be here and so thankful for this church um, and just all that you guys are doing. CB has been a great friend uh, to me and to my wife, Trish, but also to our church. So one of the things we've been doing, you might not even know about this, we have a college retreat that we do every year, and I lead that college retreat. And we do it in a place called Stevens, PA. Does anyone ever hear of Snowith? Does anyone know um, where Shenick, Pennsylvania is? Where my wife grew up in Shenick, Pennsylvania. So we um, we uh, we go to Stevens, PA for this retreat. And so CB has been coming down for years and preaching and ministering to our college students. And uh, God has been using him. We've seen people come to Christ. And and uh, we're just so thankful for our friendship, our partnership. I knew CB in when he was in college, and just so glad to be part of of a family of churches where we're together. And so uh, it's it's just a joy uh, to to be here with you guys. If you guys want to turn to Isaiah chapter 52, the title of my message is called Beautiful Feet. All right, Beautiful Feet. And I want to start with, I want to start with a story. In 1949, a man named John Currier was found guilty of murder and he was sentenced to life in prison. Later, His sentence was commuted and he was transferred from prison and paroled to work for a wealthy farmer near Nashville, Tennessee. In 1968, after working for that farmer for many years, his sentence was terminated, meaning he was free to go. State correction uh, department records show that there was a letter written to John Currier and the former for whom he worked. The letter said that he was a free man. The courier never saw the letter. One year went by, and then two, and then five. Finally, ten years went by, and he still did not know that he was free. He just kept serving out his sentence. He lived a a hard life that was filled with labor. He made almost no money. And he had to use that to try to pay for his personal needs. He slept in a drafty trailer. He took baths in a horse trough. He had little joy and no promise of hope. This went on till 1979 for over 10 years. And then a state parole officer found the letter and he delivered it. He delivered it to John Courier 
and brought him the good news that he was free. It's suspected that the farmer liked the cheap labor and never delivered that letter. Now, how would you feel if you were John Courier? You were free, but but no one delivered that letter to you. Imagine if, if you had a letter that important. If you had news that good. And you never delivered it. Well, this is what we're going to learn about in Isaiah chapter 52. So read, follow along with me as I read in verse 1. Isaiah says, Awake, awake! Put on your strength, O Zion! Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city! For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise! Be seated, O Jerusalem! Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion! For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, And you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. So those are the rulers of Israel. Therefore, verse 6, Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. And then verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings Good news of happiness who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now Isaiah here is prophesying about the future when when Babylon would rise to power, they would destroy Jerusalem and then carry God's people into exile. This is devastating news. Jerusalem is the city of God. This is the place where God dwells, but the Babylonians would come and tear down the walls. They would rip apart the temple, kill the defenders, and enslave the rest, leaving only the the weak and the poor and the sick behind. And Isaiah is picturing these stragglers waiting in the ruined city of Jerusalem as a battle is being fought for their freedom against the Babylonians. This battle is not being fought in front of the ruined gates of Jerusalem. It's being fought a few miles away, over the mountains. And so Isaiah pictures the the dejected people in the city breathlessly awaiting news of this battle. If the news is victory, they're delivered. If the news is defeat, then all is lost. But listen to the tone of, of Isaiah 52. It's full of triumph and joy and celebration. In verse 1 it says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come unto you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So God is telling them, Awake, get up, put on your strength, get your best clothes on. Take those rags off. Why? Because the city has been delivered. There are no more enemies. They've been defeated. Stop laying around in the dirt. Get up. Dust yourself off and sit down. Take your chains off. Undo the shackles from around your ankles. Take that chain off your neck. You're no longer a slave. Your captivity is over. And then in verse 3, The Lord says something very interesting. It says, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. In other words, the Babylonians just came and took God's people for nothing. The same with the Egyptians and Assyrians. That's why they're mentioned in verse 4. The Lord didn't get anything 
when they went into captivity. No payment. Nothing. It, it looks like the, the big Babylonian bullies just kind of came and took God's lunch money. God surrendered His people for nothing. And the Israelites felt completely let down. They're convinced here they shouldn't have trusted God. He didn't come through for them. So they're lifting up their voices and crying and, and wailing against God. How could God let this happen? Well, for one thing, their captivity came about because of their own sin. This is what they deserve. They were being disciplined for centuries of defiance and rebellion and betrayal. It was their fault, not God's. But this part is amazing. God breaks in on their complaints and their anger with verse 6. Verse 6 is completely unexpected. God just got done saying in verse 5 that Israel continually despises His name all day long. They despise Him. They despise who God is. They complain and doubt and condemn God. And then in verse 6, God says, Therefore, my people shall know my name. Israel was saying, how do we know, God, that what you said in verses 1 and 2 will happen? How do we know that you're going to do this to the Babylonians? Why should we dust ourselves off? Why should we put on our best clothes? We've been in captivity for 70 years. Why would any of that change now? How do we know that what you say is true? Second part of verse 6, God says, therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. In other words, the, the Israelites are saying, how do we know that what you say is true? You know what God says? Because I'm the one who said it. Because I am the one who said it. It is I who speak. You know what this reminds me of? Remember in Luke chapter 1 when the birth of John the Baptist was foretold? Remember when Zechariah was in the temple and he was burning incense, and the angel Gabriel appears to him in the temple and tells him he's going to have a little kid, a little boy, John the Baptist, and, and Zechariah does not believe him. And Zechariah, remember what he says? He says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And you remember what Gabriel says? I love this. This is what Gabriel says. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. You know, I, I, I think there's something in us that doesn't naturally believe good news. God is telling the Israelites here in Isaiah 52 incredibly good news, and they don't believe it. It just seems too good to be true. That they just think about all the ways God has failed them. And so, like Zechariah, they, they question if what God says will come to pass. And it's not wrong to question things, except when God is speaking. Gabriel wanted Zechariah to understand, we're talking about God. We're not talking about the empty promises of men. We're talking about God's Word. I stand in the presence of God. I've heard His words, and I'm telling you what God is saying. And here in Isaiah, God is speaking again. Another promise of good news. But it's hard to believe good news. It's hard to believe God, especially when we're going through trials. When things aren't going the way we want them to. So, so we doubt God. We don't believe His promises. And at times, we, we despise Him. Israel here was wailing against God. They were charging Him and, and blaming Him. So, so what, is, what is God going to do? It's kind of funny how it says in, in verse 5 where it says, Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord. It's kind of like God is saying, well, well, well. What do I, what do I have here? What am I going to do with these people who despise me all day long? You know what God says in verse 6? I'm going to show them my name. Oh, they're despising me? 
I'm going to show them who I am. I'm going to come to them. Here I am. God is once again going to show them who He is. He's saying, despite your constant rejection of me, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to comfort you and restore you and dwell with you. It's amazing. It reminds me of the song, How Deep the Father's Love. You guys know that song, right? I love that line that says in that song, that He, that the Father, would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. It's amazing. To make a wretch His treasure. And that line in, in Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. I had a, a friend in high school um, who grew up in a Baptist church. I did not grow up in a, Christ, a gospel preaching church. I did not know Amazing Grace. I wasn't vaguely familiar with it. We, you know, I never sang that song. So he grew up singing it. And he and his friends in the Baptist church, uh, when they were like in middle school, when it got to the line that saved a wretch like me, they would all, that saved a wretch like you, when they'd point to other people in the congregation. Which I thought was really funny. Um, but we don't like to think of ourselves as wretches, do we? It's, it's not natural. But we are wretched. And we have despised Him. You know what His response is to that? I'm going to come to you. Here I am. See, this therefore in verse 6 makes no sense. It does not follow. We are wretched. But He makes us His treasure. He takes us back. He shows us His power. And He gives us Himself. He reveals Himself. So that we know Him. And so that we, we don't doubt Him any longer. Now, there's a big difference between Israel's story and ours. God couldn't just take us back the way he did to Israel. In their case, he didn't pay any money to the Babylonians. He just took his people back. But with us, he had to pay. And it was a price beyond anything that has ever been paid. It cost God dearly. To get us back, it cost God his son. Our sin against God puts us in an infinite debt to God. And this is not a debt that He can ignore. Our sins must be paid for. We must be punished for all the times that we have despised God. How are we going to escape this? We have chains around our neck. We're lying in the dust. Our captors and oppressors are walking our streets. Is there any hope? In comes verse 7. Look at Look at verse 7. I love this. How beautiful. Upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. Remember God's people that were sitting in the ruined Jerusalem and in bondage and slavery. Remember the battles taking place miles away. The watchers are on the walls eagerly looking for any news of the battle when suddenly on a distant hill they see a runner. And he runs quickly down the hill and into the open plain. People start to gather on the wall. What is the news? He's yelling something. What is he saying? He's saying good news. Good news. There, There's peace. There is happiness. We're, we're saved. God reigns. Let the celebration begin. God was right. Put on your beautiful garments. Take off the bonds of slavery. We're, we're saved. Lift up your voices and sing. Sing for joy. We have been redeemed. Now, I, I, I really tried to think of, of what this would feel like. Like what would bring this level of joy and, and for me, I think it would be like when I was, you know, like in middle school, like 10 years old, I think it was like having school canceled because of snow. 
You know what I'm saying, right? Like, apart from Christmas, there was nothing that could bring me and my twin brother more joy than, than, than a snow day, right? I mean, pure happiness and delight. I think it's like a 10-year-old boy. That's the greatest news that could ever be delivered. And, and in a real sense, we were saved. We were saved from the prison of school and we, we were delivered from our oppressors. Our teachers, right? We, peace came because there was no more forced labor, homework. I think that's probably kind of like the joy that they were feeling. And, and you know, I, I like how verse seven emphasizes the feet of the guy bringing the good news. Did you notice that? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? How beautiful are the feet of those who publish peace? How, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of happiness? How beautiful are the feet of those who publish salvation, who, who says your God reigns? Now, the irony here, right, is that feet aren't beautiful. They're dirty and nasty and smelly and ugly, especially in biblical times when they wore sandals or or they just go barefoot. They, we, you know, their feet were just filthy. You know, when we tell our kids to come in, we tell them to wash their hands. When they told their kids to come in, they told them to wash their feet. Hey, kids, come on, it's time for dinner. Wash your feet and get up at the table. I mean, they feet were just a mess. And and even today, people in our society do not like feet. They are grossed out by feet. But when you are bringing the gospel to someone. When you're bringing news this great, even your feet are beautiful. The feet of my mom in her old slippers coming up the steps to tell us it was a snow day. They were beautiful feet. Listen, the feet that run over the mountains and down the road to deliver the good news of the gospel are the most beautiful feet in the world. They are feet worth celebrating. We have news that is greater than any news that anyone has ever heard. And, and we have the joy and privilege of bringing this good news to those who desperately need it. We're God's messengers. We're His runners. We're His feet. There's a great story that captures this in 2 Samuel 18 where there was this battle that was real tense and the Lord had defeated David's enemies. And Joab, the commander of the army, told this Cushite to go and run and to tell David the good news. It was exactly like what we're talking about where the David and the others were waiting on the wall to see what the news of the battle was. And so Joab sends this Cushite and says, Run and go tell David the good news. Well, there's this guy, his name is Ahamaz, and he comes up a little later and says, I, let me run and go tell the good news. And Job says, no, I, I already told the Christians to go. And he goes, no, he keeps saying this, well, come what may, let me run. He's like, well, there's not going to be a reward for you. It's not going to do you any good. He says, he says, come what may, let me run. And finally, he just wears Job down. He says, okay, fine, run. And the guy outruns the Cushite to tell David the good news. We have an amazing message of good news. And we should just be dying to get this message out. We should, we should be saying, let me run. Oh, come what may, let me run. Let me tell others the good news. Now, let's, let's look for a few minutes at the good news that God wants us to share. So I have three points here you'll You'll see these in the text. Number one, the gospel is news of peace. So what is the good news we're sharing? Number one, the gospel is good news of peace. We see that in verse seven. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. This is what everyone wants, right? Peace. We want peace in our relationships, peace in our world. But listen, we don't know how to get it. In the 70s, Cat Stevens told us that all we needed to do was to get on the peace train. John Lennon said, just give peace a chance. 
Now, they were talking a lot about civil rights and the Vietnam War when the world seemed like a very divided place. Unfortunately, not much has changed. The world seems almost maybe even more divided. But part of the reason the world is so divided is that we can never have real peace until we have peace with God. We were all born into a war, a war that we're fighting against God. From the moment that we're born, our sinful nature tells us that we should be God. We should be the king. We should be in charge and make the rules and do what we want. That's what sin is. Sin is doing what we want to do and not what God wants us to do. It's pushing God's authority down in order to boost ours up. And this is where our problems come from. Declaring war against God is not a good idea. If God is against us, we will never have peace. But the gospel is a declaration that peace has come. In Romans 5.1 it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus made peace between us and God. God had declared war on sin, and Jesus stepped in front of us and took the full assault of God's wrath that we deserve. It should have been ours. He took our punishment, cleansed us of that sin, and then brought us to God. And because of what he's done, we can be at peace with God. That's the message that we proclaim to this world. And we have to find ways to tell people about this peace. Now, did you notice how it said in verse 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who publish peace? This is kind of weird. So it's, just, it's like this guy's like running down the hill. He's out to the open plain. Right before he gets to the walls of the city, he stops and starts setting up a print shop and starts setting up his printing press. And people are like, hey, what news do you have? Hold on, let me get the typeset finished. And then I'll publish these newspapers and you'll find out. Well, no, that's not exactly what happened. The word publish here means to herald or to proclaim. It means someone that's been entrusted with a message. We're called to herald, to to proclaim to those who are not Christians so that they can find peace with God. Number two, the gospel is news of happiness. Again, in verse 7, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. You know, religions try in very different ways to bring people happiness. But they don't do a very good job. They usually bring a lot of duties and requirements and rules that leave people feeling guilty and aware of how far short they fall. Jesus is the only one that can bring true happiness. Do you know why? Because he's the fountain of happiness. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been happy for all eternity, loving and glorifying and adoring and worshiping and celebrating one another in perfect joy. And when we repent and turn to Jesus to save us, we're joined. We are automatically joined to this joy-filled happy trinity. We're united with God himself, and then we become objects of his love and affection. See, the world is desperately looking for happiness. But it can only come when we are united with God. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. See, happiness can only come when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and joins us to Christ. When when God comes into our Jerusalem, when He comes into our ruins, into our mess, and He sets up His throne, when He takes ownership of us, then we become happy in God. Most people don't see God this way. But God, listen, God is full of gladness and happiness and laughter. That's why he created things that give us joy and happiness. That's why he created laughter and and tears of joy and and clapping and maybe even doing things like this and 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 singing. I mean, read the book of Acts. 
Think about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is particularly marked with joy and celebration. The gospel's not as much. There is joy in there, but there's a lot of tension and fighting and tension going on. When you get to Acts, there's a lot of problems there too, but there is just joy. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come and filled us and brings this early church joy, even in the midst of terrible trials and difficulties. Now you may say, well, maybe the apostles just decided to get happy because of the fact that Jesus was alive? Um, No. That's not why they got happy. They got happy because the Spirit of God came inside them and revealed Christ in them. God now dwelt inside his people. Check out this quote from A.W. Tozer. This is great. He says, The moral happiness of the Creator, of God, the moral happiness of the Creator had taken residence in the breasts of redeemed creatures and they could not but be glad. The work of the Holy Spirit is, among other things, to rescue the redeemed man's emotions, I love this, to restring his harp and open again the wheels of sacred joy which have been stopped by sin. Isn't that a great sense? That's what sin does. It's going to stop your joy. And the Spirit comes to restring that heart and says, let's sing. Let's sing again. Guys, we have a message of happiness to share with others. Let me ask you a question. Does the message of the gospel make you happy? Does it? Does the message of the gospel make you happy? If it does, you should be eager to share this happiness with others. It it shouldn't be a chore or a duty. It should be a delight. We have the incredible privilege of bringing happiness to a world that can't find it. Number three, the last one. The gospel is news of salvation. Again, in verse 7, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. See, when that messenger was running across the plain, he was yelling, we're saved. We're saved. The Babylonians are defeated. We're not going to die. Church, we have a message of salvation for those around us. And it's, it's more incredible than anything that could ever be imagined. This message is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or how badly you've sinned against God, no matter how much you've despised Him and doubted Him and railed against Him and disobeyed Him, you can be forgiven all your sins and joined to God. You can be saved from the punishment of hell through the blood of Jesus. You don't have to suffer the agony of God's wrath because salvation has come. You can be rescued. And it's all because God reigns. He won. He reigns over sin and death. And God has given us salvation. He's given us the victory. And He calls us to run and spread this good news. But it's not going to be that easy. It's hard, isn't it? Sharing the gospel is probably the hardest area of the Christian life. It's difficult for me. It's difficult for us. And here's the problem. When we tell people the gospel, they don't respond with joy and singing. They don't kiss our feet. When we run down the mountain with the message of good news, people think we're crazy. People think that we're outdated and intolerant. People think we're self-righteous and hateful and judgmental. Our news doesn't seem that great to the rest of the world. And there's reasons for that. One reason is that our good news has some bad news attached to it. People don't like to hear the bad news. They don't want to hear that they're sinful wretches that can't save themselves. But we have to share the bad news so that they can then understand and receive the good news. And that's not easy to do. There is risk involved, especially in today's hostile environment. It's getting worse. It's getting harder. I heard a terrible statistic recently that 50% of Christian millennials, so millennials basically here can be defined in voice, basically people in their 20s and 30s, okay? 50% of Christian millennials that are following Christ, young people that are following Christ, 
believe that it's wrong to share their faith with someone else. Not that it's hard to do it, that they shouldn't do it, that it's wrong to share their faith with others. Now, I understand why they're saying that, because it's risky. Sharing the gospel is scary. We're we're afraid of what people think about us. The number one obstacle in evangelism is it's fear. It's a dangerous job. You know the saying, don't shoot the messenger. Well, the messenger could get shot. It was the preaching of the gospel that got Jesus killed. Despite the fact that he had the most beautiful feet in the world. Think about the feet of Christ as he walked those long, dusty roads and he brought the gospel to so many and he, and he healed the sick. Think of his feet, all those miles. Those feet were, were so beautiful that in Luke 7, a woman just kissed his feet and kissed his feet. Let me read it to you in Luke 7, 37. And behold, a woman of the city, she was a prostitute. That's what that means. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment standing behind him at his feet. So when they would eat dinner, they actually ate on couches. Their head would be toward the table and their feet would be out behind them. So she's back behind them as they're kind of all facing in toward the table. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And later in that story, Jesus says, hey, to the Pharisee, when I came into your house, you didn't greet me with a kiss. But this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. Even though Jesus had the most beautiful feet in the world and brought us the greatest news in the world, they still pierced those feet. They made his feet bleed. They drove a nail into his feet and nailed his feet to the cross. Some people kissed his feet. And some people pierced His feet. Some people will love your feet. And some people will hate your feet. One of the reasons evangelism is so dangerous is because people don't realize the danger that they're in. They don't realize that they're lost and they need salvation. And because of this, our message doesn't seem like Good news. It's like when my mom would would come to, to wake us up for school. She would have to come upstairs to get us up. And it was not good news. But imagine if it was a snow day and she was coming up to, to wake us up. And we were just like, no, get mom, go down. I don't want, I'm tired. Let me, let me sleep. We just moaned and complained because we didn't want to go to school. We, we didn't want to see her feet coming up the staircase. That's what the world thinks. The world thinks that Christianity is, is like going to school. It's a bunch of rules and restrictions and, and boring work. They don't realize that we have joy beyond their wildest dreams. We have an eternal snow day to tell them about. But they have to see the danger that they're in. They, they have to understand what their real problem is. See, our world thinks that our main problem is politics and lack of money and, and bad relationships, and those are problems, but they're not the greatest problem. Our greatest problem that is our, our sin is separated from God, and we can't earn our way out of it. This is a great quote by J.C. Raw. He says, Till men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need, No real good is ever done to their souls. Do you realize the significance of that? Unless someone sees their sinfulness, 
and feels that sinfulness, you cannot help them, their souls. You can't help them. We have to be able to see our need. And and we need to remember that people don't see this problem. We have to help people find a way to see it. And you know what? God is going to help us in this. I know that you guys do a great job bringing the gospel to people. I've been so encouraged to hear about what God is doing in this church, to see this good news club and to hear about things like my friend Eric Strom and others, just what God is doing here. God is doing a work here, and God is going to continue to help us. And That's why God's brought us together this morning. He wants to remind us through Isaiah how amazing and beautiful and powerful the gospel is. And we know how beautiful the gospel is, don't we? We know how powerful it is. Do you remember when you were lost? Don't forget that. Do you, do you remember what your life was like? Do you remember when your heart was hard and closed to God? Do you remember when you first heard the gospel? Do you remember when the gospel broke in and saved you and changed everything? This is why we come together and worship with all of our hearts. We're reminding ourselves of the power of the gospel that has saved us. That's why in Romans 1 it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the power of God For salvation, the message of the gospel is power. We don't have to be powerful. We don't have to be clever or wise or perfect to share. We just need to get this message out and watch God work. We have, we have power on our side. It reminds me when I was in third grade, we used to, as boys in our elementary school, we used to get in fights and wrestle and we always, everything was a competition and an argument. And it would always end basically with someone saying, well, my dad can beat your dad up. So we're trying to draw other power, like who do we have on our side that we can kind of back us? Well, one day in third grade, they had this like, bring your dad to lunch day. And I was like, oh, yes. So for those of you who know my dad, my dad is 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 like Eric Strum, but about six inches taller, okay? He's like six, 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 seven, three hundred and fifty 350 pounds. He's huge. And so we're all sitting there and dads are coming in. And then my dad comes and he ducks to come under the door. And all the kids who were saying, my dad will be, we all turn and look. And I'm like, hi, dad. <laughs> hey, dad. He's with me, fellas. Comes over and sits in his tiny little seat next to me. But I, I, I gained new respect in that school like never before. I had power on my side. Guys, we have something even bigger and stronger than my dad. We have the power of the gospel. Power is on our side. Guys, you've been changed by the gospel. You know this power. You know what it means to be forgiven of your sins and adopted into the family of God. This does not mean that your neighbor is going to come bounding over the fence to ask you about what God has done in your life. But God can use us even as we take small steps. I know you don't want to offend people or, or come off like a weirdo. Alright? You don't have to. Please, please don't come off like a weirdo. Just be yourself. Just be yourself. Be, be sincere. Care about people. Maybe you haven't talked to your neighbors in years. God can use a, a greeting, a, a plate of cookies. He can use an invitation to a coworker or a classmate to, to grab coffee or maybe even a lunch. God wants to use us to take small steps. Do you know that Paul actually quotes this passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah 52? He quotes it in Romans 10. Remember this? It says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without Someone preaching. That means to proclaim or to herald. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In other words, Paul's saying, how are they going to hear about Jesus if we don't speak to them? How are they going to believe the Gospel if we don't share it with them? They're not. 
They need us to open our mouths and tell them about Jesus. And God is sending us to do this in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, in our classrooms. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent out the 12 to proclaim the gospel. In Luke 10, he sends out the 72 disciples. In Acts, he sends out the entire church throughout the world to be his witnesses. And he gives his Holy Spirit specifically to help us overcome our fears. The baton of the gospel has been passed from one generation of believers to the next. And now it's in our hands. And God is sending our feet into a world that desperately needs the good news. But sometimes we feel like, well, I'm not worthy to share the gospel. My life is a mess. We have our own problems, that things that disqualify us to share. These things do not disqualify you to share. We are not coming to people with a message that Jesus will make you perfect and take away all your problems. We're coming with a message that Jesus will forgive you, that he'll forgive anybody no matter how, no matter how messed up they are, and he will give you joy here and for all eternity. I mentioned earlier that sometimes people don't see our message as good news. But there are some people that do. Not always at first, but but they do come around. Let me close with this story. I had a good friend in in high school. My brother and I had a friend. His name was Alvaro. His name is Alvaro Rivera. And he was kind of this nerdy guy. He was in, we had a couple classes with some of the smarter kids. And he was one of those guys that we just got to know, okay? He didn't carry a briefcase, but maybe he did something. But he was he was kind of a fun guy. Like we would talk he was great intellectual. We would always talk to him. And um and I remember one day in chemistry class in my junior year, my brother Bob and I were there and and, and Alvaro shared the gospel with us, just out of the blue. We didn't know he was a Christian. He would do some things with us, like watch shows that weren't always great, but he, would, but he wouldn't party with us. He, there was lines. We never knew why he wouldn't do that, but he would, do, you know, we never knew he was a Christian. And then after a couple of years, he just comes out and, and says, do you guys think you're good enough to, to go to heaven? I'm like, of course, just look at us. I mean, we're going to make it there. And, and we started this conversation, got into this argument. We're Irish, so we can argue, even if we have no idea what we're talking about, into this argument, right? And we're just going off on this. Not, oh, you know, well, hey, hey, and he was like quoting the Bible and shared the gospel. Gave my brother and I a Bible. We fought over the Bible. He gave us a second Bible. We read the Bible. <laughs> and God used him and his boy. He, he probably was discouraged. I will tell you, after the first month or two of these arguments, he probably felt like, why am I wasting my... He kept talking to us something else. And God used that just uh, about a year and a half or two years later to save my brother and me about 300 miles apart and rescue us. About a week apart, my brother and I came to Christ. But this is what I think. I wonder why Alvaro all of a sudden decided to share with us. What made him? I've never been able to ask him. I haven't seen him in a long time. I don't know what motivated him. To say, I, I need to talk to these twins. I need to. Sh- was he sitting in a message like this? And he heard a message? And he was convicted. He thought, I got to do something about this. I thank God that he had the courage to open his mouth and to share with me and my brother Bob. Listen. Sharing the gospel can be scary, but it is a beautiful thing to bring the message of peace and hope and salvation to others. The greatest way that you can love someone is to share the gospel with them. And if you take the risk to do that, your feet will be beautiful to many. Let's pray. God, I thank you. for the beautiful feet of my friend Alvaro who shared with me and Bob and told us this good news. I don't know what made him do it, but I thank you for the courage 
Thank you for the care. Thank you for the grace that came through this man. Lord, more than anything, we thank you for your beautiful feet that came to this earth and walked those long, dusty roads to bring the gospel to us. Thank you that you gave up those feet to be nailed to the cross. That we might know peace. That we might know happiness. That we might know salvation. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, church, I want to be like Alvaro, don't you? I was so affected by what Jim was talking about in Isaiah 52 related to the gospel being a message of happiness. And one application, I think, for all of us who are Christians that I want to impress upon us is to remember that the gospel is a gospel that has brought happiness into our souls. Um I think of uh, the the sorrows that we go through in this life, the trials and the afflictions, the trials of many kinds and various kinds that we we have. And brothers and sisters, I just want to remind us that I, I, I was thinking of the expression when Jim was preaching, when Jesus said, you know, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And I wanted to just remind you, that your eternal future, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, will be laughter and happiness. Even though you weep now, you're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, because the gospel's a message of happiness. You have Jesus in your soul. But in this fallen world, true Christians weep. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh your eternal future is just going to be one filled with so much joy. And I want to just encourage all of you, my beloved brothers and sisters, to hold on to Christ and know that your future is going to be so bright and so beautiful and so happy. I just want to remind you of that truth. Because so often today, when we're in the midst of the bullets flying in the spiritual warfare that we're all in, we need to be reminded This is a gospel of happiness into our souls. And we have been saved by the grace of Christ. I also want to uh, just share with us how one thing when Jim was sharing that really struck me was oftentimes we disqualify ourselves from thinking that we can do anything or be of any good to the people who are around us. Either we disqualify ourselves because we're weak and we're sinful. I love how Jim reminded us that's actually what qualifies us. That we, we are forgiven. That's that's all we need to be able to tell people. Listen, I, I am a sinner. I still struggle. Christ has forgiven me of all my sins, and I want to tell you about him. And I love that we don't have to just have it all together in order to tell people about Christ. I love that, don't you? And I also want to be inspired by this. We often immediately think, like Jim said, that people are going to think we're fools and we're, and that people are going to think we're weirdos or, you know, and we tend to just immediately think, I, I don't want that. And so we don't, we don't share. But I think the message that came to my mind from the Holy Spirit as Jim was sharing it, it was, it came from that scripture related to, um, the, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but, To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I want to just infuse all of us with all of our different personalities and all of our different backgrounds, everything of who we are. Don't disqualify yourself from sharing. And don't also think and defeat yourself on the front end and say, you know, if I share, this person's just going to think I'm a weirdo. And they're like, yeah, you know, somebody could your friend at school, your coworker, your family member, they might just think, oh, here he goes again, or, or, oh, man, why is he doing this? This is awkward. But we often don't think about the possible happy outcome, that for those who are being saved, even through us fumbling through our gospel presentation, like Alvaro, no doubt, was probably feeling when he was sharing with Bob and Jim that day, 
fumbling through it, feeling weak and inadequate. I don't have answers to all their questions and all their kind of Irish comebacks at me. The power of God was at work in Jim. He's here today because some Christian in the past with fear and trembling stepped out in science class in 11th grade. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let us not ever give up. Let us not ever stop. We are going to be, by God's grace, and let us pray for the Holy Spirit to empower us to be bold witnesses for the glory of Christ. Because through weak us, God shows his power and saves people from eternal damnation to eternal life in Christ and salvation in Christ. And I want to be a part of that, don't you? There's nothing more important that this world needs than for us to be on fire for Jesus and and to be on fire for sharing the gospel with the lost. And uh, I just want to uh, let you know that in follow-up to today, um, coming up on August 24th, um, we're going to be having sort of like an evangelistic equipping couple of sessions we've invited our care group leaders and care group leaders' wives, our assistant care group leaders and assistant care group leaders' wives, other folks who have been involved with evangelistic ministry in our church. But uh, Jim and I were talking, and I didn't get a chance to talk with John about this yet. I want you to pray about it. If the Lord has moved on your heart, I really think I need to grow more in evangelism. I need to, I need to get stronger at this. It's there in my life, but I just need to grow stronger August 24th at 9 a.m. at the church house, we're going to have a time where we're going to be equipping our leaders, but we also want to equip any of you who feel moved of the Lord. Listen, I understand evangelism, like Jim said, it's the hardest thing. We don't tend to have the blowout sign-up sheet for evangelism seminars and my history of being a pastor, but this is exactly the opportunity for us to say, you know what? I want to be like Alvaro. I, I, I want to step out. I want to, I want to have beautiful feet to bring good news. And if you feel like you just want to grow in that, I want to invite you to come um, on that Saturday morning at the church house at 9 a.m. and uh, come and be equipped. Jim's going to be there and share a couple sessions on how to help us practically as Christians so that we can grow in doing this better. And so that's a follow-up step to today. Can we thank God for Jim again and just the blessing he was to us today? Let's, uh, let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us because it's without Him we can do nothing. Without God, we can do nothing. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us with power like, like in Acts chapter 4. Oh, Holy Spirit, we call out to You and ask and we cry out to You. We worship You. We praise You. Thank You so much for opening up our eyes to believe in Jesus. Without You, Holy Spirit, we would not be born again and regenerated. If there's anybody here, Lord, who has not repented of their sins, would you, Holy Spirit, like John 16 says, will you go forth and convict them right now of sin and righteousness and judgment and bring them to Christ? And also, Holy Spirit, I pray, would you please move in power in us who have trusted in Christ, your church. I pray that you would come and fill us with power and with boldness to proclaim the gospel and to not stop proclaiming it, even in the midst of what Jim reminded us of today, an increasingly hostile world to the gospel. Help us to be found faithful, to see the call in Scripture to proclaim Christ to the lost. Help us to be faithful in this task as a local church. Help us to be an evangelistic local church. Thank you that we have been but Lord, I pray that that fire would burn inside of us and that we would really glorify you so that many might come to know you, Jesus, through our witness. We ask this for the glory of your name, Jesus. And Jesus, we just want to thank you. Thank you so much for having your feet pierced. Thank you for having your feet pierced and shedding your blood to make wretches like us your treasure. We are so glad to be amongst those who have been saved. We love you so much. And like this sinful woman, we want to even get on our knees and we want to worship you and we want to kiss your feet.
because they are the most beautiful feet that have ever walked this earth. And we just love you, Jesus. We're so grateful for you, for making all this possible, and for saving sinners like us. We love you, and we give you all the glory for what you've done here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Isn't Jesus awesome, brothers and sisters? Don't you just love him so much? I am so blown away by him and so grateful. Well, listen, if you get a chance, say hi to Jim. He would love to meet you, and uh, I'm so thankful for him being here today. And church, thank you so much for your faithful, bold witness for the gospel. Let's carry on and continue to share Christ with the lost. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.